Hello, it's uh, Wednesday the 2nd of March and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Man Newsroom. Coming up, we're going to be talking to that quiz master extraordinaire, Anne Hegarty, about why British people love quizzes so much. Roman Abramovich, he's put Chelsea Football Club up for sale. Why is the question of a no-fly zone so controversial as Britain and NATO countries refuse to enforce one over Ukraine? I'm talking to Professor Michael Clark from the King's College about why the military operation on Kyiv appears to have stalled. But first, I'm talking to a former ambassador to Moscow about Putin's latest offer of peace talks. Are they worth the paper they're written on? So the Russian invasion has entered its seventh day today with intensifying attacks on key Ukrainian cities, including an expected assault on the city which houses Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Many people have been killed, many more wounded in shelling on Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv, after Russian paratroopers were dropped in. They also attacked a military hospital for airstrikes targeting police, state agency and the security service. Now, the Kremlin say a Russian delegation is ready to resume peace talks this evening with Ukrainian officials. So what hope have they got? Joining me now is Sir Roderick Lyne, who is Britain's former ambassador to Moscow. Sir Roderick, the last talks didn't last very long. They went nowhere. Is there any reason to think these talks will be any different? I'm not optimistic. Uh, Putin's objective is very clear. He wants to gain control of Ukraine. He wants NATO out of Ukraine. He's even making nuclear threats. Uh, and um, he wants NATO not in Ukraine. He wants Ukraine to be uh, under his control and separated from the West. I think that his delegation will have instructions essentially to threaten the Ukrainians with obliteration if they do not surrender. And the Ukrainians are very attached to their sovereignty. Uh, For them, as for us, their sovereignty is not negotiable. So it is very hard to see a basis for a peace agreement of any equitable kind. Why is he doing it? Is is it because he's got one eye on public opinion around the world and it seems even China isn't supporting his position? There is certainly some daylight between Russia and China and I think it's very important that China has taken the stance it has and if anybody is going to deter Russia from going into even more dangerous and foolish actions, I think the Chinese are the people who we must look to who have got the most traction on Russia. Um, I think Putin is doing this partly to show that he's prepared to talk peace. I don't think he cares in the slightest bit about uh, public opinion in most of the world. Uh, I think he's trying to show his own people because there is a lot of disquiet and a lot of discontent and protest in Russia, that he is trying to be reasonable. uh, And he's certainly trying to show the Chinese that. But I think also he will use this encounter as a means of uttering a chilling threat to the Ukrainians that if they don't surrender, effectively the Russian forces will continue over the next few weeks uh, until they reach the end of occupying and controlling Ukraine. 
So I think, you know, he's going to try to make their blood run cold. Do you uh, subscribe to the reports coming out of the Kremlin? I don't know what basis it's on, but that he's becoming increasingly frustrated that it appears the military operation may be bogged down and he's not moving as quickly towards its target of capturing Kiev and some of the other major cities far more quickly. There has been some evidence that they expected a much quicker victory and that they have miscalculated And it's always been said for a long time that very few people in the Kremlin uh, actually understand the way that Ukraine has changed and developed over the last 10 or 15 years. I think this whole operation is born out of Putin's frustration, which has been building up since 2014, that he's been fighting a war with Ukraine on its eastern borders for eight years, uh, trying to make the Ukrainian collapse into his arms, the Ukrainian government, and uh, he has failed. So I think his frustration, his levels of anger, and he's a man who does get very angry, are undoubtedly rising. Now, you knew Putin in the sense, I say you knew him, Sir Roderick, you dealt with him when you were ambassador. What is he like? Uh, Yeah, I attended numerous meetings with Putin during his first term of office. And at that time, I felt that there were two Putins inside one head. There was a rational Putin, pragmatic Putin, who was trying to reform and modernize Russia and who was working really hard to build up much closer relations with the West and with a lot of success in his first three or four years. And then you had an irrational Putin, who was the old KGB officer, who was very suspicious, uh, very insecure, and inclined to use violence. a very vengeful man, and you saw that happening particularly in Chechnya in that period. Uh, He would get very, very angry when people tried to raise the subject of Chechnya with him, not only with Western leaders, but his own staff used to tell me that if they tried to have a rational discussion with Putin about the way that the Chechen war was not going well, he would simply fly off the handle and, and simply wouldn't engage in a proper discussion of the subject. So you had these two Putins battling together, but the longer he stayed in power, the more cut off he has become from his people and from the world, and I think from you know, normal life. Uh, I think the more irrational he has become, and what he's doing in Ukraine has defied any rational calculation, and I don't think has been at all on the lines of such advice as most of the people in his own government will have tried to give him. Has that irrational second side uh, of Putin completely taken over the old, the other Putin, do you think now, Sir Roderick? Well, if you judge by his behaviour over the last two months, you would have to say that it has. Uh, it's pretty clear from everything we've heard from Moscow over the last week that a lot of very senior people in his own administration, quite probably including his prime minister and his foreign minister, did not actually expect him to give the order to invade. They thought he was applying pressure, but ultimately that he was bluffing. He was trying to get what he could out of negotiation. And I think a lot of people quite close to the the top in Russia were shocked by what he did and certainly uh, would not have supported it. But of course, they are frightened. Uh, They're frightened of, at the very least, losing their jobs, if not of severe punishment for them and their families, uh, if they step out of line. And they must be extremely worried about the character of their own leader. Indeed, I think we're all worried about that. Uh, That's Sir Roderick Lyne, who is um, a former ambassador, British ambassador to Moscow. Thanks for joining us.
So Russia's uh, move towards Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, appears to have stalled. Its forces are struggling with basic logistic challenges, including shortage of food and fuel, and it appears some units are affected by low morale. Recordings intercepted by a British intelligence company, Shadow Break, appear to capture Russian soldiers refusing to obey orders, including to shell Ukrainian towns while complaining bitterly about running out of supplies of food or fuel. Joining me now is Michael Clark. He's visiting professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Professor Clark, you've written extensively about the conduct of this conflict this week. I've been reading you avidly. It really does appear to be going much slower than Putin anticipated. Yes, I think the Russians began with what I would call Plan B. They tried to do this the way Western forces would have done it, which was to have very fast-moving armoured units uh, surrounding key areas and then have an air assault um, on Kiev uh, and to take out the Ukrainian government all within 72 hours maximum. Uh, They made a complete mess of it um, for all sorts of reasons, and the Ukrainians fought ferociously. We were saying after two days they've done remarkably well, After four and five days, they've done magnificently well, but they can't go on forever. The Russians can keep bringing in more fresh troops, which they are doing. The Ukrainians have only got what they've got, and flesh and blood won't keep going indefinitely. So at some point, the Ukrainians will crack, and that point is probably getting quite close. And the Russians have now gone back to plan A, which is doing what they always do, which is to surround the cities and brutalize them before they move in. The only question is, Will they brutalize them in the way that they acted in Grozny and Aleppo and Idlib and Homs? Or will, because this is Europe, will they do it a bit less severely? And the brutalizing is using missiles, planes to bomb targets, civilian targets. We've seen already various buildings blown up in Kharkov. Yes, the, the, the Russians always say they use precision munitions. I mean, where in, in Western forces have more or less 90% Uh, precision weapons and only about 10% of dumb ones, as they call them. The Russians are the other way around. Most of their weapons are dumb. Uh, They're not precision. They've got some precision weapons that work as well as ours do. Um, But actually, most of their weapons are pretty indiscriminate. So if you look at the the Grad rockets, they go in a general direction but land more or less anywhere. They're longer-range rockets that drop cluster bombs. Again, they can't really be sure where they're going to land. Um, they they don't worry too much about that because their battle plan for taking cities so far in, in recent history has been to sort of brutalize the civilian areas until they think that morale is very low and then they move in with their armour. By doing that too, is Putin storing up a longer-term problem for himself and the Russian occupying forces because uh, the that we've already seen a great spirit of defiance from the Ukrainian people? Will that not become more so if their beautiful towns and cities are brought down, raised to the ground by the Russian tanks and, and missiles? I think that's answered by uh, one phrase uh, uttered about 24 hours ago by uh, Mykola uh, Lukashuk who is the regional leader of um, the Dnieper. Um, I mean, in that area, in that region, 3.2 million people live. He says that one million of them are armed. And Dnipro, the city of, of the area, he said, I will turn this into another Stalingrad. 
and I for one believe in. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, and just finally, Professor, um, why is the uh, Russian convoy running out of food and fuel so quickly? They had, he had, he's had months to prepare for this, Vladimir Putin. Was it because they did expect it to be all over in 72 hours? I think there are different reasons why Russian forces seem to perform so poorly so far. Partly they've underestimated their enemy, which is always a great mistake. Secondly, they thought they would be all over quickly, so they didn't provision for having to still be on the road after two weeks. And thirdly, the the, the efficiency of the army is just very low. The, the, Putin has reformed the air force and the navy quite a lot with new equipment and new procedures. He streamlined a lot. The ground forces are the least streamlined of the Russian armed forces, and although their elite ground forces are, are as good as anybody's, their mass ground forces are still 40% conscript, and it looks as if They've been pretty badly maintained and they've fallen into most of the traps of the old Red Army of being essentially corrupt, uh, essentially uh, lazy in not doing what they were told to do and of just behaving in a relatively unprofessional way. The ground force are still known for all the bullying that goes on. They still suffer massive desertions from the uh, the conscripts who are brought in every year. They, they, gar- they can guarantee a, a high percentage of desertions and they spend a lot of time chasing deserters throughout the villages of Russia. Yeah, and I guess some of those conscripts, Professor, there is some suggestion that they didn't even know they were going into Ukraine to fight. They thought they were just on military exercises. I, we don't know if that's true, but that's certainly reports we keep hearing. We don't know if those reports are true, but they're entirely plausible because uh, the idea of Russians fighting Ukrainians would be a bit like you know English fighting Scots in a in a in a shooting war, and a lot of people would say, "Look, I've got family on the other side of the border. I come from Edinburgh. I I lived in Edinburgh, but I lived in London for twenty years." It would it, it's that sort of conflictual loyalty which a lot of uh, Russian soldiers will now be going through. Absolutely, that's Michael Clark, who is the visiting professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Thanks for joining us. A Ukrainian activist, Daria Kalenichuk, broke down in tears as she made an emotional plea directly to Boris Johnson when he was in Poland for British help to establish a no-fly zone above her homeland. But in response, both the Prime Minister and Defence Secretary Ben Wallace have rejected calls for that. I'm joined now by Colonel Richard Kemp, former chairman of COBRA and a former British Army commander. Colonel Kemp, can you explain to me... Uh, to explain to us what a no-fly zone is exactly and why it is been, it's been ruled out by all NATO countries. Well, I think uh, a no-fly zone means that NATO countries, if, uh, if they agreed to do it, would enforce um, a, an area over Ukraine in which the Russians couldn't fly and couldn't launch air attacks from. But um, what that would mean, unless Russia went along with it, which they would not, of course, what that would mean, we'd be at war with Russia. So we'd, we would start, be starting a Russia-NATO war. And I don't think there's any political appetite in any NATO country, among the leadership anyway, to do that. Because Exactly, because Russia would use that Ukrainian airspace. They may want, Maybe they want to do it to bomb Ukraine, or they, maybe they want to bring in paratroopers, and British planes or NATO planes would then presumably try to take out the Russian planes. They would do. They'd have to if they, unless they were just to be a laughing stock. Because if you declare a no-fly zone and you don't enforce it, then it's meaningless. And if you do enforce it, then you effectively you 
would precipitate a, a much larger war than we're seeing in, in uh, Ukraine already. Do you think uh, even if it gets desperate for Ukraine, Colonel Kemp, and we know that the food is running out and the, you, the, the Russian convoy is getting closer to Kiev, uh, that, that 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 position cannot change because it could, as you say, then trigger a world war. And we do know Putin's got an enormous nuclear arsenal. Yeah, I think, uh, we, we, you know, we, we, we obviously need to keep that in mind. I, I suspect there could be a situation where NATO might engage, and I say might um, advisedly. Um, and that, you know, that might be a major humanitarian disaster, even bigger than the sort of thing that we're seeing at the moment, but with, you know, with very, very large numbers of Ukrainians dying and, um, and being wounded by uh, Russian attacks. It may be that NATO feels an obligation to to intervene to to make it uh, make it stop. But but of course, if that did happen, there's then the further risk of that conflict continuing and just expanding. So I can't really see a circumstance short of, let's say, Putin using tactical nuclear weapons inside Ukraine, which would probably trigger um, or may trigger a, a wider NATO intervention. Um, I, I can't see any real circumstance where that would happen. Could there be in, a, in another conflict, Colonel Kemp, I know we're speculating here, but could there be in another conflict uh, perhaps a 24-hour uh, uh, no-fly zone to enable humanitarian aid to be flown into Ukraine to support the Ukrainian people? Um, uh, and if perhaps it wasn't uh, someone like Putin commanding the other forces, that might happen? Or can you envisage no conflict where this could happen? Well, we imposed no-fly zones on Iraq um, when they were attacking the Kurds, particularly, um, and and that worked because, of course, you know Iraq wasn't anything like as um, as strong a power as Putin is. So, yeah, no-fly zones have worked in the past and have been imposed in the past, but but always by a vastly superior um, country or countries against a more inferior one. We're not really talking about that at the moment. We're talking about, you know, Putin not just having a very large armory of nuclear weapons, but also a very significant conventional armed forces. Uh, so, uh, you know, unless unless a, you know unless a deliberate decision is taken that we're willing to go to war with them, um, which I think is unlikely unless he invades a NATO country, then it's just something that is not really a, a starter. I mean, I can see why the president of Ukraine and why many people in Ukraine would like us to do that. And I fully understand that they would, would wish it. But, but I, I just don't think it's, uh, it's feasible, given, given a lack of, you know, real lack of political will by anybody really in NATO to do it. And just finally, Colonel, there has been some speculation that NATO countries like Britain may actually uh, uh, give planes, uh, war planes uh, to Ukraine, which they could land in Poland or, or Hungary possibly, and then be brought in. Um, is that again a possibility or would that be breaching their NATO uh, responsibilities in a sense? It wouldn't be a breach of any NATO um, rules uh, and indeed, it's been discussed, the idea of warplanes being made available via Poland um, for Ukrainian pilots. Of course, the warplanes would have to be of the type that the Ukrainian Air Force is using. There's no point in us giving them some of our aircraft, which they don't have. Um, but some, some NATO member states do have the same type of aircraft, and it was being considered. But my understanding now is that it is no longer being considered. And I think the reason for that is because they they believe it would enrage Putin and probably 
again may may provoke a wider a wider conflict. I think I don't, I'm not sure that's the reason. I'm speculating, but I suspect it might be. Fascinating, always. Always good to talk to you. That's Colonel Richard Kemp, former chairman of the government's Cobra Committee and a former British Army commander. Thanks for joining us. It's that time of the podcast now. We talk sport with Deputy Sports Editor Tim Nichols. Well, this is a turn-up, Tim. Abramovich has put Chelsea up for sale. Is that bowing to the inevitable? It, it is. It is bowing to the inevitable. Uh, sport continues to turn its back on Russia and Russian money. We've already seen FIFA and UEFA, the main governing bodies of football, uh, ban Russian teams from their competitions. But this is the, this is the one, this is the mm. big one for English football. Uh, Roman Abramovich, the billionaire owner of Chelsea, bought the club for £140 million in 2003. It's been lots of speculation about whether he would put the club up for sale uh, he's not actually been officially sanctioned yet um, no. by the UK government but uh, he has put the club up for sale Swiss billionaire Hans-Jörg Weiss uh, who's worth a reported 4.3 billion has claimed he's been offered the chance to buy the club mm. he would um, do it as part of a consortium but you know, with all these things, when people go public to buy big Premier League clubs, you've always got to take it with a pinch of salt. But, you know, if Abramovich is asking for £3 billion, uh, that's a huge, huge amount of money for a football club. He is owed about between £1.5 and £2 billion by Chelsea. Yeah. Whether he's prepared to write that off or whether that's part of the price, um, we'll have to wait and see. But the pressure is increasing on Abramovich to sell. Is it because he's worried if he does get sanctioned, that will impact on Chelsea in some way? I don't know what his motivation for it is. Mm. That could well be one. I would imagine money comes into it mm. as well because he will take a huge hit if he is yeah. sanctioned. Um, but yes, you, you would like to think that he has got some goodwill towards Chelsea mm. and their fans who will be obviously very nervous at the moment. You know, were sanctions to be put yeah, in place right. before he's able to sell the club? Will he write that, as I said, will he write that mm. debt off? Who's going to be willing to go to do business with a with a Russian oligarch right, right. at this moment? It, you know, there are a lot of questions questions to to answer the fact is Abramovich has transformed English football you know for good or for bad he's pumped in a huge amount of money and has sort of completely changed the way the game is seen in this country um, there's, there was always a lot of opposition uh, not just rival fans but some people felt uneasy with with a figure like Abramovich coming in but now that he's leaving it could leave a real vacuum particularly at Chelsea but but there are so many different issues to, to look at for the Premier League, uh, for for the government, for anyone connected with Chelsea, anyone connected, anyone who's going to be trying to buy the club, that, that you know, I'm not sure it's going to just necessarily go through very quickly. No, very unsettling for the players and the team. Well, it is. I mean, you know, he's bankrolled that club for 18 mm. years. You know, a, a huge personal cost and. Someone's going to have to pick up the tab. Certainly are. Um, so, and it's not. I mean, look. Obviously, that's the headline news mm. today. Abramovich putting Chelsea up is 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 a seismic moment in English mm. football. But Everton have cut ties with a number of Russian firms today. Now they're right. quite an interesting situation there because their owner Fahad Mashiri um, is a business partner of Alicia Usmanov, who has been sanctioned by the EU. Yeah. Um, Mashiri is the chairman of USM, which is one of Usmanov's companies. They sponsor. Everton's training ground right. they scrapped that deal okay. but the owner of their club is the chairman of the company that they've just scrapped the deal with it's all very murky mm. and uh, very interesting to see that, that Everton have taken that approach given who their owner is and, and, and his links Meanwhile, in um, in the Paralympics, which is coming up in yep. Beijing, athletes from Russia and Belarus have both will both be allowed to compete as neutrals. It seems it's a joke. Isn't it, it? Well, it is. Uh, you could argue that it's not really fair to punish them. I mean, we've seen in the in the um, 
in the Winter Olympics last month that uh, Russian athletes were allowed to compete. Yeah, yeah. They competed under the Russian Federation, which was obviously a nonsense. Mm. And then what was the biggest story of the entire games? The the, the, the Russian, Russian skater. skater. Exactly. Uh, so that that you know, Nadine Doris has come out and said totally unacceptable. This is this needs to She's change. Culture secretary. Yeah. Um, She's come out and said that. Um, and then in in uh, motorsport. Russian drivers are banned from racing in the UK, which, you know, the the, the Blue Ribbon event is obviously Silverstone and the British Grand Prix, which yeah. uh, will take place this summer. Um, the Russian driver will be um, banned from that. It'd be interesting to see what happens with other countries now, because obviously F1 is such a global sport. Mm. It goes all around the world. They've already lost the Russian Grand Prix, yeah. which was uh, scheduled for September. But if a Russian driver isn't allowed to compete anywhere, then obviously... That's that's his career finished. Well, um, it's pressure from all quarters. It is. And sport is a very powerful way, and that will be really felt by the Russian people. Absolutely. Great stuff, Tim. Uh, lots to read. And there's also some, a lot of sport going on on the sports pages, too, apart from the world of politics. Uh, that's the Deputy Sports Editor, Tim Nichols. Thanks for joining us. So why do British people love quizzes quite so much? New research suggests 78% of us take part in quizzes from a pub quiz to crosswords. One in five of us do a quiz every single day. So here to explain the joy of quizzing is the champion quizzer herself, TV star Anne Hegarty. Anne, why do we love quizzes so much in this country in particular? Such a basic idea, isn't it? I mean... uh you know, we must have been doing it for thousands of years, sitting around the campfire asking each other questions. So just so straightforward, ask a question, you know, get the answer. And how did you become addicted to quizzes? Was that as a child or at school? Yeah, it was when I was a kid. Um, I Well, when I was a kid, certainly I, I got fascinated by reading books and uh, learning things was the thing I wanted to do. Um, and I sort of worked out that my primary school was was not going to manage to teach me very much. Um, so I was going to, you know, kind of need to learn a lot of things by myself. Yeah. And, and now the latest big uh, rage, uh, if it's, it is a quiz in itself, it's Wordle. I don't know if you've done that. Uh, I'm about the one person in the world that isn't actually playing Wordle. That's uh, but, interesting. Um, every other quizzer I know is, uh, and they're all posting their scores. Um, I'm just sort of looking at them and thinking, yes, but I'm more interested in quizzes than in, than in word games, although I like a bit of both. Who was your, as you were growing up, uh, Anne, who was your favourite quiz master? Oh, uh, every Sunday afternoon we'd have um, watery stewed mints because my mother couldn't cook, right. uh, mashed potato and uh, semolina. And University Challenge with Bamba Gaskell. I wondered if you were going to say Bamba who of course, we, who of course just died very recently, of course. But he'd had a good long innings. And what is the success to being good at quizzes, Anne? Because you are the best. <laughs> there are lots of quizzes that I would be delighted to beat in, you know, even just one genre or even just take a question off them. But by and large, you have to do a lot of quizzing. Um, take part in quizzes regularly. Read a lot. Reading a lot is good. Reading the papers, yeah. um, keeping an eye on uh, the news. If you do enough quizzes, you know what kind of news story is going to throw up what kind of question. So you start thinking, I must remember that because that's going to come up. And of course, the Great British Pub, which is a great tradition in this country, the quiz is an also a big part of, of, of that. 
That's right. I mean, the thing is, there are there are different sorts. There are pub quizzes, which is when you have like a dozen teams and they've all got wacky names. And at the end of it, uh, somebody ends up winning a beer voucher. Um, and separately from that, there is league quizzing, which takes place in pubs. Uh, and that's just two teams quizzing against each other, trying, you know, to, to, to top the league. I mean, the, the league I'm playing on a Tuesday night, our team has just gone top of the league. Why am I not surprised your team has gone top? <laughs> we do have a lot of good quizzes in that team. Um, so it's not just all me. And what is your, if you had to say your strongest area in a quiz, um, yeah. what would it be and what would be your weakest? Um, I like what you might call old popular culture. Old films, uh, old music, things that a lot of people forget. Quite good at answering questions on royal family history. I'm not good at sport. Right. I'm trying to get better at sport. There's just so much of it, and it's happening all yes. the time. Oh, constantly. Um, what was the last question you didn't get right? I do remember being asked a question in this quiz league that uh, got everyone very angry, which was, who was the last American vice president um, to become president, or something like, to succeed to the presidency? And they didn't make it clear what they meant. Did they mean um, the last time that a vice president succeeded in the middle of a president's term, Gerald Ford succeeding Nixon? Or did they mean um, the last time when um, the vice president to a president uh, then became vice president at the next election, which would have been the senior Bush? Or yeah. did they mean what I said, which was simply someone who had been a vice president becoming a president, which would be Joe Biden? Um, yeah. It turned out they wanted Gerald Ford, but it wasn't terribly clear. You know, that there are three possibilities there. Now, that was a yeah. bad question. Uh, Very but bad yes, question, I didn't, yeah. I didn't give the answer they wanted, so I guess technically I got that one wrong. Fascinating stuff. Always good to talk to you. That is the great champion quizzer herself and star of TV, Anne Hegarty. Thanks for joining us. That's Anne, great okay. to talk and to do, you. Do look out for the hashtag cryptograms, which is how you can win a free donut. That's it, because this research, of course, is by Krispy Kreme, of course. Uh, so what's, remind us what the hashtag is, Anne. Uh, the hashtag is, in, is cryptograms, and starting from tomorrow uh, on uh, Krispy Kreme's social media, uh, they'll be setting a puzzle with a clue, and if you solve the puzzle, it's someone's name. Uh, you go into the Krispy Kreme store, anywhere where they're selling Krispy Kremes, and you give the name, and if it's the right name, you win a donut. How about good is that? Can't be bad. That's Anne Hegarty. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show, and good night. Good night.